And I'd like to introduce tonight's speakers. The general topic is Colorado State Government and Forests, Controversy Over Health, Climate, and Roads. And those don't all fit under the forest issue directly, but I think they'll be woven in. Mike King is Executive Director of the uh, Colorado Department of Natural Resources, and Nolan Duskin is the State Climatologist at the Colorado Climate Center at the Carter, Carter State University. Mike is a native West Slope Coloradan. He's he became the Assistant Director for Lands, Minerals, and Energy Policy and Natural Resources in January of 2006. He was appointed Deputy Director in September 2006 and then became Director. And prior to his work with the Executive Director's Office, he worked for in policy and regulation, the policy and regulation section of the Colorado Division of Wildlife in various capacities for six years and was an assistant attorney general from 1993 to 1999. He received his bachelor degree of, in journalism from CU Boulder and then his law degree from the University of Denver and a master of pub in public administration from CU Denver's Graduate School of Public Affairs. He currently lives in Parker and we over dinner talked about when they're gonna run out of water. Nolan has been at Colorado State University with the Colorado Climate Center since 1977, serving as the assistant state climatologist until he was appointed as state climatologist in 2006. He received his BS in meteorology and oceanography from the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan in 1974, an MS in atmospheric science from University of Illinois in 1976, Last year, he finished a two-year term as the president of the American Association of State Climatologists. In addition to monitoring current and long-term climate conditions in Colorado, he also is the founder and national director of the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. So we learned about volunteers collecting rain information. If any of you want to sign up afterwards, you can get into the network. At the end of these talks, we'll have time for some questions and answers. I try to keep it short because I know students need to go study. And for my students, there might be a pop quiz tomorrow, probably on what's talked about tonight. And there are then some refreshments uh, afterwards so you can stay and chat with the speakers. We ask that you be respectful of a whole variety of positions. You may not agree with everything you hear in this series but we want to make sure we have a very open discussion where the community and students can think about really important issues like forest health. So, Mike. Professor Hegox, thank you for the introduction. Um, it is a pleasure to be at the Colorado College. Uh, my family has a long, proud tradition of, uh, of involvement with the college. I have three cousins from Olathe um, that are all graduates. They may be the only three people from Olathe to ever graduate from Colorado College. <laughs> I have two brothers who uh, matriculated here, um, but I was the youngest of four boys, and by the time I got ready for college, the funds had been depleted, and I was forced to endure a woefully inferior education at the University of Colorado. <laughs> One of the brothers um, is now the superintendent for Boulder Valley Schools. The other is the director of uh, arts for the New York City School District. 
And again, my career has languished and I've been unable to rise above my current position. So <laughs> we're going to have to have a talk at Christmas, but we'll work through this. Um, the history of Colorado's roadless rule is a personal odyssey as well as a natural resource odyssey. And it is in many ways reflected, uh, reflects the conflict that we wrestle with in all of our natural resource management. And it really comes down to the expectation of what we do with our resources. They're limited, they're scarce, and the demands for the utilization far exceed the supply. And this is something of a case study um, for all natural resource management in Colorado and throughout the country. Um, five years ago, I was happily ensconced in a warehouse out at the Division of Wildlife. And Russ George was then the director at DNR, and he called and said, I've got this issue, and it's intractable. There is no solution to this. It's miserable. I don't want to do it, and I need some help. Will you come down and, and work on this? And I said, well, with an offer like that, I mean, how are you going to pass that up? And I came down, and five years later, I'm still working on this issue. And just about the time I felt like uh, I was entitled to some sympathy, I was uh, making that statement to a a lobbyist for the uh, coal industry, and she said, young man, I've been working on this issue for 35 years, so quit complaining. <laughs> the history of Colorado's roadless rule um, begins with the Wilderness Act of 1964 itself. Um, I'll give you a brief aside. For those of you who have not studied um, or read books about Wayne Aspinall, you really need to do that. There's two I would recommend in particular. One I can remember the title, the other I can remember the author. Um, Mr. Chairman is an incredible book about the history of Wayne Aspinall and his role, not only in Colorado's natural resource management, but in our country's management. Uh, he was uh, chairman of the Interior Committee for 12 or 15 years during the 1950s and 1960s. Um, he was an arch-villain to the environmental community, but he wielded power like few other in Congress, to the point that when he was voted out in 1972, he lost a Democratic primary, of all things. Um, the rules on committee were changed because of the way um, he uh, ruled with an iron fist. The other book, the author is Schulte, S-C-H-U-L-T-E, and it's an incredible history about natural resource management. It focuses a lot on water. But Wayne Aspinall basically set out the contours of the Wilderness Act of 1964 and what would be allowed and what would not. And what was created with the Wilderness Act was these areas that we obviously call wilderness. And they're places where man is but a visitor, is the, is the great phrase. And, um, but as part of that, one of the things that Aspinall was able to get in his uh, negotiations during this process was a commitment that only Congress could designate wilderness areas. And this will be fundamental to how we find ourselves here today. Previously, the president exercised authority through the Antiquities Act and it designated and set aside a significant amount of land. And Aspinall said, no, that's not going to happen anymore. So the roadless areas rose out of this act. These are areas that have the potential to be designated by Congress as wilderness. They have roadless characteristics. They're, they're pristine. They're natural environments. And if Congress chooses, this is the pool of land that Congress can reach into and make wilderness. By definition, wilderness areas reside in national forests. They're not BLM lands. They're a minimum of 5,000 acres. They're either contiguous to existing, road, or to existing wilderness or they're standalone 5,000 acre tracks. They're undeveloped and largely without roads, as we found out. They're not all without roads. Um, and they're in a substantially natural condition. These areas are critically important to Colorado. They, um, as most of us who live here, understand that um, our natural resources uh, provide a tremendous amount of the enjoyment and reward we get for, for living in this incredible state. 
we take our, our, our pristine areas very, very seriously. Um, they also have a tremendous amount of economic potential, both for recreation and tourism, as well as for mining and other interests that are sometimes precluded, depending on the management proposal, and roadless being something that we're going to talk about. There are watersheds, there are wildlife uh, habitat, there are recreation um, of all types, and there are, of course, just solitude. And I firmly believe in the intrinsic value of our wilderness areas and our roadless areas. That uh, uh, knowing they're there, I think, adds a quality of life that most of us would agree is important. The 2001 roadless rule represents a dramatic shift in management of our country's roadless areas. As I said, Prior to the 2001 rule, which formed the baseline for all of the, the issues that we're wrestling with today, the inventory was just that. It was an inventory of available lands. It had no management prescription attached to it whatsoever. The, inventory, uh, the inventoried roadless areas were rolled into what Tony uh, Dixon, I'm sure, talked to you about in the context of the White Forest. The forest management plan is the foundation for managing our nation's forests. And roadless areas were treated just like other lands. They were evaluated in the context of forest management plans. And they were either given more or less protection, depending on uh, individual plans for our nation's forests. There was 58 million acres of roadless um, acres nationwide and 4.4 million in Colorado. In the waning days, literally in the waning days, January of 2001, President Clinton signed the 2001 Roadless Area Conservation Rule. It was not a statute. It was not a bill. It came to his desk after months and months and actually years of rulemaking processes. They had public meetings around the country, and they were literally under the gun to get this rule out before they left office. And they promulgated the 2001, or what some people call the Clinton Rule. For the first time, these roadless areas were not managed by forest management plan. They had substantive protections placed over them. Certain activities would and would not be allowed in these roadless areas. And that is what created the, the firestorm that has uh, led us to where we are. Immediately, uh, Judge Brimmer uh, in Wyoming enjoined the 2001 roadless rule. He declared that it was, there were two fundamental deficiencies. First, that it effectively was wilderness, de facto wilderness, as he called. And as we said earlier, only Congress can designate wilderness. So he said that was wrong. Number two, under the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires an evaluation of all of these alternatives, he felt that the rush to get this through uh, in the waning hours of the Clinton administration resulted in violations of NEPA and overturned it on that basis as well. That decision, believe it or not, has gone round and round, and it is now pending in front of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. As of right now, the 2001 rule is enjoined in Colorado. There are no substantive protections today in Colorado, and even that is subject to uh, um, some dispute depending on who you talk to because other courts in other parts of the country have, have disagreed. We're waiting, and it could come down any day for a decision reinstating the 2001 rule, which will throw what we've done in Colorado um, very much up in the air. But we are proceeding with our rule <clears throat> that I'll go into more detail on. But just understand you may pick up the paper any day and find out that uh, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals has weighed in on this. As with any good natural resource policy issue, it arises from a fundamental conflict of, of legitimate policy values. 
and they're values that are deeply embedded in us. There are those who believe that it is a natural resource, and natural resources need to be used, at least used judiciously, in a manner that preserves conservation, but not preservation. We use it, we use it lightly, and we benefit from it economically. The other camp, of course, thinks that these areas have intrinsic value and they should be preserved for their own sake, and that there are economic values that go with preservation, the recreation that I talked about earlier. There is no right or wrong answer on this issue, but there is a legitimate policy question about how we do this and how we manage these areas. There's also a legitimate policy question about whether it's appropriate for states to manage these individually or to develop management plans on an individual state-by-state -state basis, or whether, in fact, we should have a national overriding policy and land management prescription for our nation's 58 million roadless acres. The Enviros fought long and hard for this. This was the holy grail to them, and they're not going to give it up easy. The conflicting or the competing interest is that the states know best. We have unique and particular interests in our state, and that we, with a 4.4 million acre Colorado-specific rule, can tailor it to our needs and to address issues that are important to us. Colorado has chosen the latter approach, not without much consternation, not without significant blowback, especially among the national environmental groups. In 2005, Governor Bill Owens and the, and the legislature, which one house was controlled by the Democrats, one house was controlled by the uh, Republicans, and of course Governor Owens was a Republican, passed Senate Bill 05243. It created a 13-member uh, bipartisan task force that would hold nine meetings around the state and accept over 40,000 comments from the public. We petitioned under the Colorado, or I'm sorry, under the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. Um, there's a long story that's a little bit of an aside. Bush had a state-specific rule. That was blown up in court. But the state still always has the right to petition for rulemaking under the uh, Federal Administrative Procedures Act, and that's what was done. The task force made recommendations uh, in the waning hours of the Owens administration, gave the petition to Governor Ritter, who has continued to move it forward. Politically in Colorado, this issue has very strong support. A state-specific rule, we invested tremendous time and resources. These 13 members endured hundreds of hours of debate and public uh, discussion about this. The public commented uh, in person and in writing, and we think we tailored a pretty tight rule for Colorado um, to the point that uh, we have now been through two presidential administrations, and we're on the verge of our third gubernatorial administration, and there's been no sign that we're backing away from this rule in any way. In fact, we got 100 members of the 100-member legislative, Colorado legislative uh, 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 group to sign a resolution supporting this rule. Um, and Governor Hickenlooper, as I alluded to, has also stated that he intends to support uh, the Colorado roadless rule. So where are we today? We've submitted our rule. We are actually waiting for, believe it or not, not the final EIS, but the revised draft. EIS. We hope to have it out in mid-January, uh, mid and we expect a final rule to be promulgated in 2011. So why is our rule different? What have we done in Colorado um, that we think makes our rule better for the issues that we face? First of all, in 19, uh, the 2001 rule, because it was done in a manner that was trying to beat the deadline, uh, utilized the available inventory at the time. It was a 1979 inventory. You can imagine the GPS technology that's available today and, and our ability to better look at what exists on the ground. And so we have a much updated 
uh, inventory that's current. We added 410,000 acres of, uh, of areas that should have been included in the 2001 rule and were not. We also deleted a, a roughly similar amount that were eroded and degraded and should not have been included but were. But at the bottom line is we have a much better inventory. Also, there are a couple of things that came about. As I said, the 2001 rule has been in effect and out of effect two or three different times over the years because of the various court proceedings. But under the 2001 rule, there was a, 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 a judicial interpretation from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals that allowed for what were called linear construction zones. The case was the Bull Mountain case, and it was a pipeline. Remember, roads are precluded under the 2001 rule, but that was allowed. And the Tenth Circuit, in what I think was a relatively uh, relatively is not strong enough. A remarkably strained opinion said, that's not a road. That's a linear construction zone. Well, in Colorado, when you think about the gas development that's taking place, this was for a gas pipeline. If this is allowed under the 2001 rule, I would argue you haven't protected much. You will Swiss cheese this state, spaghetti it would be a better metaphor, this state with these kinds of, of pipelines and, and we will uh, see our, our habitat degraded. And of course, anytime you have disturbance of this magnitude, you have potential for erosion problems, sedimentation in our streams. We felt that this was a significant problem, and we fixed it in the Colorado rule by uh, expressly prohibiting this type of activity in areas that weren't already disturbed. I'll give you a Here's just a couple of more photos of the type of activity that were deemed linear construction zones and allowed under the 2001 rule that are precluded in Colorado going forward. We also have changed circumstances, and this is um, uh, what Nolan is going to be speaking about more in depth. But anybody who's lived in Colorado for the last 10 years knows that we've seen a remarkable change in the landscape, especially in northern Colorado. Unfortunately, it's coming to you. You have a little bit of spruce beetle issue uh, down here. It's going to get worse. but. Um, in 2001, I've got a series of slides that will show you the march across the landscape that we've seen from the, the bark beetle epidemic. The 2001 rule provided no flexibility for communities like Granby and Grand Lake that find themselves in the epicenter of potential catastrophic wildfires. They were left to literally look out at the fuel with no tools to do anything to protect their communities. And as we learned with Hayman um, and Buffalo Creek, to protect our watersheds, to protect the sedimentation, the, the, the Denver water is going to spend $75 million to dredge uh, uh, Cheeseman Reservoir as a result of Hayman. Um, those are the kinds of things that you're going to see if, if fires run wild through um, these areas that are impacted by bark beetles. And the 2001 rule precluded these communities from taking uh, preventative measures. Our rule gives some flexibility, but we think we've narrowly tailored it to make sure that it won't be used as an excuse to do backcountry timbering, but still allow some flexibility for communities to protect themselves from catastrophic wildfires. This is what it looked like in 1996, 1998. This is what you were looking at with mountain pine beetle and the spruce beetle epidemic. It was a naturally and is a naturally occurring phenomenon, but because of climate change, because of uh, the 2002 drought, because of 100 years of uh, um, fire suppression and uh, timber limited timbering, we had a the perfect storm, uh, roaring and ready to go. Uh, we had a, a homogeneous age class of decadent uh, lodgepole pine trees. And what you'll see is what we've witnessed on the ground since then. And each year it spreads a little bit more and a little bit more until we realize that in 2007, the landscape we're looking at 
is very different than the landscape we were looking at in 2001. And we feel that the Colorado rule is, again, narrowly tailored to provide some flexibility uh, to give these communities the opportunity to um, treat these areas adjacent to their watersheds and, uh, and their communities. Today we have 3.1 million acres of dead pine trees in Colorado. We have 100,000 trees a day falling. And it probably will get worse before it gets better. At least it's going to continue most likely to crawl south across the landscape. So this is what fuels look like. The environmental community, um, oftentimes in natural resources we look to the science, hard science, to solve our problems. Often it's a fool's errand because the science is um, invariably unreliable and unsure because of the unbelievable number of vari variables that go into every um, natural resource issue. One of the things that, that we've learned is, is that, and, and um, one of the earlier speakers, Thibault, um, was someone who helped us evaluate this issue. The catastrophic wildfires require um, that you remove fuel for at least a half mile. I think most people would agree a half mile is a minimum to do some removal. I'm not talking clear cutting, but I'm talking removing um, some of the decadent stand. Um, others would argue you need to go a mile and a half into these areas in order to change the fuel dynamics and the fire dynamics as it comes rushing towards these communities. What you see here is a classic um, uh, uh, fire break that, that is you know, cleared out 40 meters from the house. This is entirely appropriate and should be done, but if you're those two firefighters standing out there in the middle, I think it's cold comfort. And I think we owe an obligation to those who um, are called upon to protect our communities to make sure that they have literally a fighting chance before we put them in harm's way. What you've seen, and, and, and again, this is, um, this is a little bit evolving, um, the, the science that, that, that backs this up. Um, this has historically been what people have thought to be the fuel cycle for dead trees. The environmental community is now producing um, science, and, and it's not just the, the environmental community, it's, it's legitimate science, but it would seem to argue that maybe this threat isn't as high as we thought. This is where the, 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 the uh, needles were still on the tree, it was standing. You can imagine the fuel's high, the winds blow, it's going to go. But there's some science that would say that really that may not be as bad because the, the dead pine um, needles don't contain some of the resins that cause, uh, that literally provide the fuel for the, for the fire. Most still think that this is a huge risk and, and it just, um, that, that, that will continue to argue about. This is what we call the jack straw phase. This is when they fall over and they literally crisscross the landscape. They're impossible to fight. You cannot send uh, firefighters into those areas because they get in and they can't get out. So when, when that happens, you have tremendous fuel loads very close to the, the ground. And those are the kinds of fires that do incredible environmental damage because they bake the ground just like Haman did and they result in tremendous sedimentation. So what the Colorado rule did was we provided limited ability to treat. We provided an incentive for communities to create what are called community protection um, plans, uh, community wildfire protection plans. This gives them the ability to cut trees out to a mile and a half. They can build roads within some of those areas uh, to help facilitate the removal um, out to a half mile. So it's basically a sliding scale to a half mile. You can build roads to remove trees and remove trees 
from a half mile on, you can remove trees, but you can't build roads. And then beyond that, we have water intake structures and, and very specific strategic treatment areas that would be allowed, but, but by no means any, any wholesale um, timbering would be taking place in those areas. The other thing that the Colorado rule did, remember we have 4.2 million acres. As we went around the, the, the state in these public meetings, we found that there were a couple of critical issues that we could address very narrowly um, that would be important for Colorado's economic interests and still we felt protect the vast majority, and I mean 99% of Colorado's roadless areas. Um, first of all, within the existing ski boundaries of our 12 or 13 ski areas, there were 8,250 acres. And again, these were within existing permitted areas. We removed those from the roadless inventory to let these ski areas expand within those areas um, to uh, make sure that they had the ability to remain economically viable. Um, the coal industry in the North Fork, there are three coal mines. Um, they had, at this point, 29,000 acres um, that were uh, permitted. Our rule would allow them to expand where the 2001 rule would not. Um, they can build temporary roads. We call them long-term temporary because they will be there for quite a while. But once the activity is done, they're going to have to button those up, reclaim them, and put that area back into its pristine state. Um, understanding that it will probably never be as pristine, but it will certainly not um, look like an active coal area. And these are not open pit mines. I want to be clear. These are underground mines, and these the disturbances in the roads would be for vents, not for uh, open pit mining. And that number, we've actually reduced. There was a fourth area, and we pulled it, so that, that number that says 29 is actually uh, 28,000. So you can see in the pie chart, the total area, um, 7 tenths of 1 percent, that we would allow for limited economic activity to take place in these areas of, of the North Fork, around Paonia, and then our ski areas. So that's where we stand, and we're waiting for uh, the U.S. Forest Service. I had a call over dinner um, asking about one last provision in the rule um, that they're wrestling with out, at, uh, out, out in D.C. And, of course, um, Harris Sherman, who was also in my position when he was here, is now in charge of the, uh, uh, he's the, the, the political appointee of President Obama in charge of the National Forest. He actually got a pass on the roadless rule because of his involvement. But um, um, they're working through it, and we hope to have a draft out in January and a final in um, July or August of next year. So that's where we stand, uh, subject to a court decision. Lord only knows what that will do to it. It will be another uh, interesting round uh, in the development of Colorado's roadless rule. Professor? Thank you. Don't forget the questions that you had for him. Sometimes the second speaker uh, gets the barrage. I would like him. There we go. Well, good evening, and this is a pleasure to be here. I did not have the connection to Colorado College uh, that uh, Mike has had over the years. Uh, this is actually, today is the first day in my 33 years on the job in Colorado that I've set foot in a building on the campus of Colorado College. I have been on the campus, just not in a building until till today, and I, this is a lovely room to be in, and thank you uh, for the invitation. I am familiar with Colorado College, however. Part of my job, as I'll show you momentarily, 
Much of my job is tracking the climate of Colorado over time. I am uh, responsible for maintaining the Colorado State University main campus weather station near the Lori Student Center. Anybody have seen that weather station up in Fort Collins? Yay! All right. There's, uh, and we're wrapping up our 122nd year of continuous daily observations. Haven't missed a day since 19, 1888 was the last time we missed any daily reports. And so we have a pretty good uh, uh, sense of the pulse of climate there. Uh, but it turns out that Colorado College hosted the Colorado Springs weather station for for many decades. In fact, what was the formation date of this uh, college? 1874? Are you aware of the famous weather station that was begun in 1873, which was the Pikes Peak mountaintop weather station? And quite a illustrious history of telegraphed reports from weather observers stationed on top of the peak that then went out via telegraph across the country. And in fact, many people came on the train finding their way to Colorado Springs in the 1870s and 1880s because of the stories they had heard from the weather observers up on the peak, some of which were totally true and some which were nicely exaggerated. Uh, but uh, anyway, our office, Colorado Climate Center, Colorado State University, has been there at CSU since 1973. 1973 was the year that uh, the former state climate program that was a federal program, the state climatologist used to be a federal employee in each state, in the case of Colorado, located in the old downtown post office building in Denver. Uh, and that program was abolished in 1973. And the office was established then at Colorado State University. All the states in the country scrambled in the early 1970s to try to take over the remnants of this uh, ab aborted federal program. Interestingly, I was in college in the early 1970s with a passion for studying climate. My classmates all wanted to be weather forecasters. I wanted to keep track of historic data. And my advisor told me with no uncertain uh, terms, he says, that is a bad choice. <laughs> Climatology is a dead field, a dead science. Do not pursue it. Uh, and I had one class at the University of Michigan in climate and the professor who taught that class reinforced my advisor's uh, uh, advice, and he was awful. Uh, but I, and that was the only class in climate and climatology that I ever took. But my interest in climate per prevailed, and I, it's just so f amazing and fun to see how a field that was uh, viewed as dead uh, only a little over 35 years ago is now a, a field of of great life, excitement, and occasional controversy. Uh, we're on the Foothills campus of Colorado State University. That picture won't do you a bit of good unless you've done, been there. In fact, we've added one, two, three, four new buildings 
on top of that little hill. Have any of you ever been to the National Center for Atmospheric Research? And there's a couple of hands go up in Boulder. A much, several hands. A, our department was a poor man's NCAR, uh, where we're on a hilltop overlooking Fort Collins, about 200 feet above Fort Collins, whereas NCAR is on a mesa about 1,000 feet above Boulder, right up against the Flatirons, overlooking Boulder, Denver. Uh, they're much more spectacular environment, but we still are proud of our little place. What, was, what in the world were we there for? Well, we were there to, and we were established for agricultural purposes. The support and funds for the Colorado Climate Center in the 1970s was Colorado was still a very agronomic state. It still is, but as a percent of the overall uh, economic activity of the state, agriculture uh, continues to hold a, a smaller role than it did through history. But our main responsibilities are monitoring, which is keeping the pulse of the climate, taking measurements, tracking over time the behavior of our climate, uh, con conducting research, and then services, which is providing information and expertise for those who benefit or are pursuing that information. And in this case, sometimes it's flat out providing education. I spend a fair amount of time working with teachers and teacher and educational organizations providing uh, background in climate because they're hearing a lot about climate change but not yet understanding necessarily that much about what the climate is that they're hearing is changing. So I put my emphasis in understanding the foundational climate that affects our forest, affects our water, affects our life, affects our, our time together here in Colorado. There's a picture of our campus weather station near the Lori Student Center uh, with some modern instruments and some very old instruments. Uh, in some cases, we are measuring with instrumentation not unlike what we used in the 1880s and 1890s in order to have a consistent data set over time, but we keep introducing new technology as well. So my question uh, that I get asked many times, and I get both love mail and hate mail regarding uh, climate change. And the, but the question is, and I think this slide came from a talk I gave to an organization you're probably familiar with, Club 20, who I think it was Governor Ritter's first uh, opportunity to speak to Club 20, a uh, relatively conservative group on the Western Slope. And they asked me to come and talk about climate change, and they had, they, they wanted to hear what the state climatologist had to say about it and, and wondered, should we be concerned about it? Is it something that's just a bunch of, of bull or is it really something of, of substance that we need to plan, plan for? So I, the tack that I take, I'm not an uh, atmospheric modeler. I don't really, I know what goes into the climate models, but that's not how I spend my days. I spend my days tracking what we have observed over time so that we can get a sense of how much variations occur that are natural and what starts to look like it might be out of, out of context with what we've experienced historically. And there, this isn't the Pikes Peak Weather Station, but two years before the Pikes Peak Weather Station was launched, the Denver Weather Station was launched in downtown Denver. That first 
uh, entry. Actually, they goofed the very first day. They got it on the wrong line. And they had <laughs> so the very first entry in the historic weather record books back on November uh, 19th of 1871, and they got it on the wrong day. But they've been doing pretty good ever since. And similar records. What's the name of the library down here? I can't remember if it's your library or the city library that has the, the books in it from the Pikes Peak weather observations from the 1870s. It's a treasure if you have the chance to look at it. Anyway, the observations went from being a part of the old, did you see what was the name on that, that form? War Department. The op weather data was originally collected in Colorado by the War Department. It became a civilian activity starting in 1890 when the Department of Agriculture took over. And within, uh, good, you can see that. Within just a few years, this is where weather stations were collecting data in Colorado already in 1890. And there's one that says Colorado Springs. And in fact, that was right here on the campus of Colorado College. Uh, and you'll see a smattering of stations. In fact, do we see Montrose? Yes, it's on there. Uh, uh, have you ever visited Fort Crawford? A lot of people on the Western Slope have never heard Fort Crawford. It didn't have a long history, but just like Fort Collins and Fort Lyons and a few other, there was a military uh, base over there uh, trying to fend off the, the Indians. Uh, and then gradually over time, Data collection spread to almost every, not every community, but many communities, every county of the state, so that we have a, a foundational data set dating back over 100 years. There's the National Observing Network, and many of these weather stations were from citizen volunteers, just folks like you who said, yes, I can help you take measurements in the National Weather Service, formerly U.S. Weather Bureau, helped provide instrumentation. Volunteers helped donate their time in taking the daily reports and filling out the forms and sending them in. And gradually, we have built a historical data set. More recently, uh, there's been lots of controversy whether those informal, official, but sort of informal volunteer weather stations were good enough quality to uh, confirm what sort of variations and changes might be occurring in the climate. And th just in the past decade, this additional, much more expensive uh, observing network of about 120 stations was installed, focused simply on the task of monitoring climate over time in pristine environments. This would be up in the Black Canyon is where this uh, weather station is. The closest one to Colorado Springs, I think, is down on the, uh, what's the grassland called uh, in southeast Colorado? Comanche, that's it. Uh, we've got one in northeast Colorado on the Pawnee grasslands. We've got one up west of Boulder at a CU Mountain Research Center. We've got one at Mesa Verde and one at Dinosaur National Park, so, or monument. So those are the six stations where we're very closely tracking changes over time. But when you've only got seven years of data from those modern stations, you can't tell too much about the, how things have changed over time. So we're building our story based on the volunteer observations for many years, then more 
uh, uh, meticulously uh, collected data over the last few years. So what have we learned from all of this effort? You know this already. We've got a fa fascinating climate here. Our state is quite amazing. The backdrop you're seeing is a satellite image of the state and showing the, the vegetation uh, and topography. And what are we? We're the highest elevation state in the Union, and by far. I mean, not even a close second. Wyoming is the second highest state. Uh, we are in the mid-latitudes. You know that. Uh, and that means interesting seasonal variations and air mass conflicts between the tropics and the polar regions. We're in the interior continental area, which means, well, we're a long way from ocean sources. And that means we don't have the modifying, moderating effects of the oceans. I was just visiting my sister over the weekend in Sunnyvale, California, the Silicon Valley, and they are a moderated, ocean-moderated Pacific near-coast climate. And they have very few cold days and very few hot days. And most of the time, just really easy going. And no, hardly ever does it get really dry. It's always just a little humid and comfortable. We have our amazingly complex topography, which you get to experience here every single day. I hope you look at it and enjoy it, because I grew up in Central Illinois. <laughs> How many of you have ever set foot on the campus of the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana? Several hands go up. Uh, what did you notice about the landscape in that part of the country? <laughs> it was really flat. Uh, so I could tell you a story which I don't have time for, which is how I explained that I had the the experience to be selected to work at the Colorado Climate Center because they wanted five years experience in mountain climates. <laughs> I had two weeks when I was seven years old and one week when I was 18. And that didn't exactly qualify. You would, be, you would have been much better qualified to be a, a climatologist than I was at that time. But our mountain topography, our complex valley, plateau, canyon, mountain climate, uh, topography has a huge effect on climate. You put it all together and we have, again, because we're far from ocean sources, we have largely a sunny climate. Not a totally sunny climate, but a largely sunny. Low humidity much of the time, not all of the time. Some of what has drew some of you here or kept some of you here, because I bet a lot of you came from somewhere other than the front range of Colorado. And that is, you like the sunshine. You like the dry air. But there's a price to pay to have sunshine and dry air. And it is, you don't have that much rain. And yet we want all the benefits that you get of lots of precipitation that makes things green and growing and lovely. And, and so we have this ongoing conflict between people loving to live in sunny, dry places but needing water to live the way we like to do it. When you live in an interior continental location, you have large seasonal and large day-to-day -day changes in temperatures. Uh, high seasonality. I can predict without any risk of failure that next summer will be warmer than this winter. 
It's a cycle that happens every year without fail. Other parts of our climate are less predictable, but the seasonally cycle of temperature driven by sunshine, driven by day length and sun angle is unavoidable. Uh, in an interest of time, I'll just blast through some of this stuff because you'd like to hear more of it, but you'll have to come up to CSU and visit me someday and we'll give you a more extended view of what makes the climate tick and then the connection to forestry. Uh, but again, we have, you'll see over the Midwest, over the South, over the East, that's a, there's quite a bit of variability once you get into the East. But in the Midwest particular, my part of the country where I grew up, it's the climate just sort of varies gradually from as you go north and south, and then as you get farther out on the plains, there's a, a little bit more change as you go up in altitude in the Great Plains. But then you see what happens when you get into either coastal areas or particularly mountain areas, and then you start seeing these dramatic mile-to-mile -mile variations that occur in temperature and precipitation in all aspects of our climate. You again look out your window and you see it. Well, hopefully you go outside, you don't have to look through a window and see it every day as you look at Pikes Peak and the surrounding mountains. But it's something you almost start taking for granted, but it's a part of the climate. Every foot you go up and down in the mountains, it's a little bit different than it is below or above. Topography and elevation, driving what goes on. And then there's this curious thing called climate variability. And it's climate variability that, that uh, in, impacts the argument about climate change, uh, makes it a little harder to describe and, and, uh, and have people get a grasp of climate because no two years are ever the same. This is temperature. Temperature is a fairly predictable variable. Doesn't change a lot from one year to the next, but yet as you look at this graphic, which will be statewide average temperatures over the last 115 years, and you'll see, whoa, we have hot years and we have cold years. A few degrees difference from a really hot year to a really cool year. You'll see we were on a real roll uh, starting in the late 1990s uh, going into the last couple of years. But lo and behold, now the last couple of years, we reverted back to near average. Now, we haven't had a really cold year for quite a while. When I came and set foot in Colorado in the 1970s, there was a lot of talk about global cooling. And it really was. Globally, the temperatures went down from the 30s to the 70s. But then since that time, the trend has been upwards, but erratically upwards. Uh, and then when it comes to precipitation, and when you think of forest, when you think of vegetation, temperatures are an important driver, but precipitation is the element that is most amazingly variable. And that is any given storm puts down quite a chaotic pattern of precipitation. And then as you add it up over time, there we go, there's Colorado, there's the national picture of average annual precipitation. The blues are the wet parts of the country, the reds are the dry, and lo and behold, Colorado, if it wasn't for our high mountains to harvest and squeeze out that moisture as it makes its last hurrah over the spine of the Rockies, 
If it wasn't for our high Rocky Mountain chain there that's roughly perpendicular to the upper level winds going from west to east, squeezes out that moisture and gives us these few high areas where our forests are that harvests the bulk of precipitation. And here is the statewide pattern of average annual precipitation. And interestingly, those blues and greens where the average precipitation are greatest tend to be the areas where we have forests. And everything that's less than about 16 inches has a hard time allowing forests to grow. And in fact, it's amazing that we squeeze out forests with 16 inches of precipitation, but ponderosa and pinyon juniper can do it. Uh, again, in the interest of time, I will not elaborate, but there's a lot of seasonality to our precipitation, a huge amount. Where do I, where's my graph? I'll get to it momentarily. Uh, and did you know that far, for our latitude, considering where we are, about 39, you guys are, man, you're a little, who knows the latitude? Is it 39 degrees here? Is it a little slightly below 39? Uh, 40 goes baseline. Baseline in Boulder is 40. Uh, uh, so you're south of 40, I know that. But for our latitude, we are one of the snowiest places in all of the northern hemisphere and in, yeah, the northern hemisphere, not just North America. Uh, yeah, there are some high elevation areas in Asia that harvest quite a bit of precipitation at even lower uh, uh, latitudes, but they have higher elevations, the Himalayas. Uh, so it's because of our elevation and this makes some interesting things when it comes to discussion of forests and climate change. And we have a special network up in the mountains. Some of you are familiar with this. The snow telemetry system that tracks the accumulation of snow and the water content of that snow up in the high country. And again, every year it follows one predictable pattern, that is snow accumulates during the winter and melts during the spring, but every year is different. That would be each of the last four years uh, on a statewide basis, uh, 2010, uh, where, which one is it? Oh, I didn't update it, it wasn't done. That's why it doesn't come to an end. We ended up hanging in there pretty good through the end of the year. But every year, again, is different. There's a time series of spring snowpack in the mountains. It varies profoundly. What are our really dry years? Well, the year that I started work, 1977 extremely low snowpack. And then we followed it in 2002 with not quite as bad, but it turns out in 77 we had good summer storms. In 2002, any of you remember here, some of you were here in Colorado Springs, you're sort of accustomed to July and August thunderstorms. What didn't it do in 2002? It didn't do that. And you saw the smoke, you saw the consequences as fires erupted in many parts of the state and we were under plumes of smoke much of the summer. For me as a climatologist, that was a depressing year. Anybody remember the quote that got Governor Owens in trouble? All of Colorado, yeah, he, he said the quote that you just don't wanna say if you're, because so much of Colorado is a tourism and recreation state in the, and 
the media picked up all of Colorado is burning. Well, it wasn't. But I will tell you, on the day that he said that, and I sympathized with him greatly, that was the most depressing day for me. Painfully dry, strong winds, smoke plumes coming up everywhere, emergency uh, calls everywhere. And, uh, and I know why he said what he did. It was a crazy panic day. Uh, but nevertheless, it's something you just shouldn't have said. <laughs> quite that way, because the media is going to eat you alive. By the way, and it hasn't happened to, to me since 2002, but from the time I started in 1977 till 2002, each year somebody from the tourism and recreation industry would remind me to be careful about how I used my language and how I talked about drought, reminding me that Coloradans are familiar with the dryness and, but when news stories would go to other parts of the country, particularly some of our prime market areas for people who come for skiing and uh, winter skiing, snowboarding, other recreation, and, and spring and summer white rider rafting, is you get the word drought into the public media on a national scale and bad things would happen. But do you like to recreate in rain? No, you like to be out when it's sunny and dry. And really, most recreational experiences are just fine in dry conditions, but fire is one of those things that accentuate uh, the impact of dryness like none other. Uh, okay, just because the time is clicking, I'm going to let you look at beautiful graphs. I love numbers and graphs of numbers. Uh, okay, let's show a good... Ooh, there's a weather station. Uh, some of you in this class, now you went to Fowler. Not far from Fowler is Rocky Ford. Rocky Ford is the most pristine of our historic weather stations in southeast Colorado with re weather records back to 1890. And do you think precipitation is variable in southeast Colorado? That's the take-home message from what, this one simple graph. And yet, what do we as human beings like? We like a predictable, reliable water supply that's there every year. This is what nature provides. Highly variable. And look at 2002. Awful. But look what happened just a couple years earlier. The wettest year on record, 1999. The driest year on record, 2002. If you're a resource manager, uh, a uh, land use planner, what do you do with this information? But that's what we got to deal with. I have a great deal of respect for the, for the founding water developers in Colorado. Whatever we may think, we, we're here because we like Colorado, but a whole lot of us wouldn't be here if water resources hadn't been de developed to give us the stable supplies and some food supplies to go with it. There's my weather station at the, on the Fort Collins weather, uh, right on the CSU campus. Uh, we are a little wetter than southeast Colorado, but similar roller coaster ride up and down. And finally, from a statewide perspective, and the scale is magnified a little, so it makes it look even more variable, but it's really not. There is what we continue to deal with. And while there's much talk about climate trends, and we can see evidence of warming at many, if not all, weather stations in Colorado, but it's a small amount of warming. 
But when it comes to precipitation, can you see a trend in there? It is so overwhelmed by natural variability that it will be literally decades before we have any confident sense of whether precipitation has changed. And in fact, the computer models, which are fairly strong and confident in their prediction of warming temperatures over the next 30 to 50 years, they are not nearly so confident about what's going to happen with precipitation. And what the forests respond to are a combination of both. What you and I respond to is a combination of both, uh, uh, although humans perhaps care even more, more about the precipitation because we have more abilities uh, to creatively adapt to variations in temperature. Uh, and then just this known painful reality, there it is, drought is a way of life here. This is onset of short duration drought almost every single year since weather record began some portion of the state for some portion of the year is experiencing drought or the onset of drought or the remnants of drought. But the memorable high impact droughts are the ones that are widespread and long lasting. And again, you're looking from 1890 through 2009 and you can see the periods that really defined water planning, water management, forest health, a whole bunch of things, which is the drought history, the famous Dust Bowl 1930s, the comparably severe for much of the Front Range 1950s, an actual roller coaster ride of the 1960s alternating floods and drought, the significant drought of the 1970s when I came to work. In fact, I had to write an essay on how would you communicate drought to the general public. That was part of my job application when I applied to be assistant state climatologist in 1977. And I didn't know hardly diddly squat about the climate of Colorado, but I sure wish I had a copy of what I wrote because it must have sounded good. Uh, and then the really amazing years that were so taken for granted, which were the years of the 1980s and 90s, which were years of generous water for most of the state, most of 20 plus straight years that led up to a really super wet year in 1999. Some of you remember the Fountain Creek flooding through the city here uh, and the huge amounts of uh, sediment transport and erosion that occurred with that. And then within three months of the, after that, some of that flooding, we were on our way, beginning the path into the, into the 2002 drought, which interestingly, look at the width of the bar there, and you'll see that it's a shorter drought than most of the other significant drought periods. So even though it was intense as all get out, it was short. Had it lasted longer, even more social change and, and political change might have had to occur. Uh, but we recovered and have not gone back in that direction. But what have you noticed about the weather recently? It's been really dry again. But fortunately, the mountains are getting snow. So uh, my point here is confidently detecting climate trends it turns out is just more difficult than you might think, particularly precipitation. 
It's easy for us to identify the year-to-year variations, the warm years, the cold years. It's easy for us to to see those seasonal cycles. They're very uh, dramatic and predictable. But long-term trends is something that's harder to confirm. Hopefully, I can show you. Nope, I'm not going to do. Ooh, yes. There's one of our longest stations, Denver, Colorado, 1871 to present. But guess what? They keep moving the weather station. Downtown, they moved it from one roof to another. Finally, it was on the post office roof for about 60 years. Then they moved the station out to Stapleton. Fortunately, they had an overlap. Then Stapleton closed, and they moved it out to DIA. And every time a station is moved or changed, it has an effect on the observed data, making it hard for folks like me. So the observed data that we want to rely on ends up telling us stories that are not always uh, the true story. Here's one that's a fun one, the Dillon Historic Records, one of our best mountain weather stations. There seems to be a dramatic downward turn in precipitation, but if you look at it, it's really two two modes, the pre-reservoir and the post-reservoir. And a lot of people said after they built Dillon Reservoir, the precipitation decreased. Well, they moved the weather station about a mile, and what we found, it took a couple decades to realize it is, oh man, we moved it to a drier location. <laughs> it wasn't that the climate became drier, they moved it in that high gradient precipitation domain to a drier environment, and it's uh, that's what we've seen ever since. We have one of the best historic weather stations in Fort Collins. We have a profound upward trend in, day, in, in temperatures there. But guess what? We are one of the most urbanizing environments around a weather station where Fort Collins was a little cow town until the 1950s. And the weather station was in a rural area on the edge of town and gradually the city has grown up around it. So some portion of this very profound, absolutely significant warming is simply a local warming called an urban heat island. The forests don't have those, although they have their own environmental change that occurs after fire, at which time the whole climate of a burned area changes profoundly until the vegetation uh, is reestablished. so, so the, this is what I find fascinating. We can find all the problems with our data, but then you compare climate data to the ecological data that people are using, forestry data, uh, fish and wildlife data. Our climate data end up looking like gold, like rock solid. We've been measuring the same way. Yeah, the stations have changed a little bit, but really rock solid. So we shouldn't whine about our data, and we can tell most of what we need to know. And what we can tell, okay, I want you to see this. We do have a climate trends website that anybody in the state can use. Where's that? There's the web address down on the bottom, climatetrends.colostate.edu. Hence, I can quit talking. You can go home and do your own research. Uh, and look at how the climate of your favorite weather station, Colorado Springs Airport, is one of the ones that we show there where the state data have been collected for 60 years since you closed the station here at Colorado College. Uh, so 
I think I'm going to leave it there in the interest of time. As you can tell, I could talk about climate for a long time. I best not. Thank you very much.